the episode you are about to hear was created prior to our rebranding to Foul Play. If you have any information on any of our cases, you can visit us at itsfoulplay.com. to another episode of Out of the Shadows. Today, Gemma and I are joined with Dr. Colin Ross. Thank you, Dr. Ross, for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for the invite. So, Dr. Ross, I know that you are a psychiatrist from 1993 to 94. You were the president of the International Society for the Study of Trauma and Dissociation. I also noticed that you continue to publish in the American Journal of Psychiatry, The first type of discussion I'd like to have with you is just to have you kind of tell me about the work that you do at the Ross Institute for Psychological Trauma in Dallas, as well as the Forest View Psychiatric Hospital in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Well, I consult to three hospitals. There's also uh, Del Almo Hospital in Los Angeles. They're all within the same hospital system. Most of my work is in the Dallas area hospital, which is where I live. But I do some in-person trips and also video conference groups at the other two locations. Probably about, it it varies, sort of 25 to 35 percent of people in the programs have dissociative identity disorder equals DID. All have complex, serious, severe trauma, almost always starting in childhood. And we provide like standard kind of medication management that happens in any psychiatric hospital. But our main thing is lots of psychotherapy. I saw that you produced several documentaries uh, as well as educational films about dissociative identity disorder. As you mentioned, it's shortly known as DID. Can you tell me about what DID is as well as the differences between repression and dissociation? Okay, well, it's a good thing we've got about six hours available to explain all of that. (laughs) (laughs) So basically, uh, DID has been around for a long time like most mental health problems, either not recognized or with different names. So in the sort of last 20 years of the 1800s and 19th century, it was sometimes called double personality, sometimes uh, double conscience, sometimes multiple personalities. And then it was multiple personality disorder most of the 20th century, up until we changed the name to dissociative identity disorder in 1994. When I say we, I mean for group on dissociative disorders that I was a member of. The reason we changed the name was to try and get away from the idea that there's literally separate personalities. It's actually all fragmented parts of one person. But that didn't seem to have any effect on the skeptics at all. So multiple personality, MPD, equals dissociative identity disorder, DID. It's basically you have these different identities inside that usually have different names and ages. They believe that sometimes they have separate physical bodies. Some of them are locked in the past, have no idea 
that it's not 1993 or 1982 currently. They think they're still at home with the abuse ongoing. And some people have just different states that don't have specific names. So there'll be me, an angry me, or sad me. And then there's uh, switching, which means one or more of these personalities, identity states, alter personalities, takes over control of the body, and the regular out front person is pushed into the background. And the person who's normally out front, when they're pushed into the background, they may be totally gone and have amnesia. They may be kind of fuzzed out, but somewhat tuned into what's going on, or they may be sort of like in the back seat, so to speak, watching, but not in control of the body. So it's these different identity states switching from one to another, some various combinations of amnesia. And what would be the difference between repression and dissociation? That's a complicated story, and it's a little bit technical, but dissociation has four meanings that I talk about in the literature. So one is it's what I call a general systems term. I mean, it's just a general term. So dissociation is the opposite of association. So when two things are associated, they're connected together, interacting. When they're dissociated, they're disconnected, out of relationship, not interacting. So in that general sense, dissociation means disconnection. That can happen in anywhere in the universe. And for instance, there's dissociation constants in physical chemistry. So it just being, it's just another word for disconnection. You can be disconnected from your own feelings, your own memories, all different things inside your mind. Second meaning of dissociation is it's a technical term in cognitive psychology that's been around for oh, 30, 40 years at least. And it's, again, a disconnection between one psychological system and another. For instance, your conscious memory system and your unconscious memory system. So there's tons and tons of experiments showing that you could have information stored in your procedural or unconscious memory. It's affecting what you do and say in college experiments, but you don't have any conscious memory of it. So that's a technical term in cognitive psychology. Third meaning is it's the symptoms of dissociation. So we said, what is a panic disorder? Panic disorder is when you have panic attacks. What's a panic attack? Well, it's the following list of symptoms. What's depression? Well, that's when you have the following list of symptoms. What is dissociation? Well, it's the list of symptoms in the diagnostic criteria in different measures of dissociation. So it's no more mysterious than any other set of symptoms. And we've got all kinds of statistics published in all kinds of journals about that. And then the fourth meaning, this is where the confusion comes in, because none of those first three meanings have anything to do with repression. The fourth meaning is it's an internal defense mechanism. So it's a theory about what's going on in your mind. And then another theory about what's going on in the mind is repression. And the differences between these two get all mushed up and confused all the time. And the extreme skeptics will say, all this repression theory is just based on ridiculous Freudian theory, and it's outdated, and there's no science behind it. There's no evidence for it. And us sensible people don't even talk about it. And then they'll say, I'll come back to that in a second. Then they'll say, and dissociation is the same thing as repression. Therefore, there's no evidence for dissociation. It's also totally bogus based on Freud. It isn't science. But in fact, dissociation in the sense of a technical term in cognitive psychology or symptoms that are in the DSM is thoroughly researched in the same way with the same kind of statistics at the same level as any other type of mental health symptom. 
So there's large scientific literature. So when we come back to dissociation as a defense mechanism, you can't like weigh or measure or photograph a defense mechanism. And the best way to understand the difference between dissociation and repression is uh, there's a guy named Ernest Hilgard who published a book in the late 70s on neo-dissociation theory, which means new updated dissociation theory. And he has a, just a little diagram to explain the difference. There's horizontal splitting and vertical splitting. So horizontal splitting, and this is just a diagram or a metaphor. Horizontal splitting is when there's a horizontal barrier in your mind, there's something in your conscious mind that you're upset about or conflicted about or don't want to know or feel. So you push it down across that horizontal barrier into your unconscious mind. That's repression, according to Hilgard. Dissociation is vertical splitting. So there's a vertical barrier in your mind. So one part of your conscious mind is disconnected from another part of your conscious mind. And nothing is pushed down into your unconscious. It's just one part of your mind doesn't have access to what the other part of your mind is holding. And there's a couple of important things about this. One is when we talk about recovered memory, if we have somebody with DID, so the out front part of the person who's the age of the body doesn't remember some abuse that happened at age 6, 8, 10, 12. So that, that's not a repressed memory because when you talk to the alter personality that does remember that was there when it happened, it's, it's not a recovered memory. It's just something they've always known. So that's completely different from the memory was totally buried in your unconscious and your unconscious mind was grinding away on it, distorting it, and mixing it up with fantasy. So really in DID, you don't recover memories. They've always been recovered. They're just held by different fragments of your conscious mind. You could say that they get recovered by the host personality, the out front person, in the course of therapy. But they haven't like come up from the unconscious, and there's no repression involved. This is a point that seems to be lost on the skeptics. They don't understand that or talk about it. The dumbest thing of all from the, about the extreme skeptics who say it's all a bunch of hooey Freudian theory, bogus stuff, it's unscientific, is they don't even understand Freudian repression theory. So they say that the dissociative disorders are all bogus because they're based on repression theory. There's no evidence for it. It's impossible to recover memories. It never happens. Well, what is it that Freud actually did and said? So if you actually read Freud, in 1895, he published a book with Breuer called Studies on Hysteria. And it's a whole bunch of uh, full or partial DID cases with lots of childhood trauma. And Breuer and Freud believe that the memories are, no memory is perfect, perfect, perfect. Basically accurate. The abuse did happen. And the women come in in their 20s, 30s, 40s with symptoms that are directly tied back to childhood abuse, including sexual abuse, that actually happened. That's the whole theory. And they talk about their patients switching and having amnesia and talking in a different language and not remembering the language they were just talking in before and so on. Then in 1890, so this is the seduction theory, that the symptoms are related to a, quote, seduction, which is already kind of a whitewash name for rape and incest. But the symptoms are connected to actual sexual abuse that actually happened. That's the seduction theory. Then in 1897, in a letter to Wilhelm Fleiss, who's a very strange surgeon with very strange theories, Freud, quotes, repudiated the seduction theory. He decided that the abuse never actually happened. 
So then he's got a puzzle. Why are all these women coming in with as adults with all these symptoms, which they think come from abuse that actually happened, but it didn't happen? So this is a puzzle. So then being Freud, he has to come up with a theory to explain that. So from 1897 on, he by and large assumed that the memories were false. In order to explain why women have false memories of childhood sexual abuse, he developed repression theory. So repression theory is actually created by Freud to explain why women have false memories. So the, the critics have got it completely backwards. And, and then in his 1917 um, essay on repression, Freud divides repression into two subtypes. So there's primal repression, which is, uh, there's, this is the id and the ego now. The id being the unconscious mind, the ego, the conscious mind. There's things in the id, like impulses, desires, drives, that are threatening to come up into the ego. Ego's got some conflict about them, so it pushes them back down. It represses them. So that's primal repression. So that meaning of repression has absolutely nothing to do with outside events or memories or trauma or anything. The second meaning of repression, this is according to Freud, is repression proper. And that's this horizontal repression barrier. There's things that are in your conscious mind, memories, perceptions, etc., feelings, and you have a bunch of conflict, for, so you push them down across that horizontal barrier into your unconscious mind. So first of all, believing that the memories are possibly, probably, mostly not 100% accurate, believing that dissociation is a legitimate thing and that dissociative disorders are legitimate, and working with people to help all the parts of their conscious mind get along better, talk to each other, share feelings, plan together, which is what we do in therapy. That's based on treating or vertical splitting. There's no memory recovered from the unconscious mind. The memory's always been in the conscious mind, and it doesn't have anything to do with repression theory. Repression theory is a totally different concept. And actually, there's repression-based theories of depression, psychosis, substance abuse, everything else. And nobody says, well, Depression's a bogus diagnosis because it's based on repression theory. And also in the DSM, there's no group of disorders called repression disorders. So nobody treats repression disorders. And nobody does so-called recovered memory therapy. Recovered therapy memory uh, therapy is just a term invented by the False Memory Syndrome Foundation. And then they attack all the therapists as if all they do is dig, 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 recover, 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 which is a ridiculous caricature of how actual trauma therapy operates. When you watched The Keepers, what did you think from when you observed all of that talk about, because uh, of course they had an expert, quote unquote expert, during the Doe Roe trial, basically say that repressed memories doesn't exist. Right. So that's Paul McHugh, who I'm very familiar with. Uh, I actually have spoken to him once briefly, former chairman of psychiatry at Johns Hopkins. Now, I don't know his exact title, but emeritus professor at Johns Hopkins, one of the lead members of the False Memory Syndrome Foundation, a devout Catholic, as he says, and uh, the only psychiatrist appointed by the Catholic Church to the panel they put together in the early 2000s to figure out how to deal with all these accusations of sexual abuse by priests. And his, his position is not some or most, or it's hard to tell, Every single case of DID is 100% bogus. There is no real DID, and it's all false memories based on this crazy repression theory. So he's an absolute, absolute on that. 
He's also, there's a Wall Street Journal editorial that you can Google easily on gender identity. He's also basically saying that multiple personality is a craze and that gender identity disorder is another craze and we're harming all these people. So he's not consistent with mainstream, are not based on evidence. He just uses his authority. I'm Paul McHugh. I was chairman at Hopkins. I've published all these books. And then says with complete confidence, this is bogus, this is bogus, this is bogus, with no evidence, no research to back himself up. And so one final comment on repression theory. So guys like Paul McHugh and some of these other false memory people will say there's no, they don't say there's a little or there's a problem, or they say there is no, zero, none, no scientific evidence for recovered memory. Why is this ridiculous? Okay, so I'll ask you guys and I'll ask the listeners, who is a, a famous Hollywood actor whose first name is Mel and second name starts with G-I-B-S? So now all of a sudden everybody remembers, oh, Mel Gibson. What are some movies that Mel Gibson was in? I hope nobody was thinking about Mel Gibson until I brought that up, right? Right. So everybody who listened to me ask that question suddenly recovered their memories about Mel Gibson that were mm-hmm. not in their conscious mind before that. This is completely normal psychology. It happens to everybody zillions of times per day. That's how the brain works. There's information stored out of conscious awareness, and you can retrieve it. So, and there's a gigantic psychology literature on memory retrieval. You have to register something, that is, you have to be awake, you see it, you hear it, and then you store it, and then you retrieve it. These are the steps in normal memory. And there's like thousands and thousands and thousands of published studies on memory retrieval, what uh, favors it, what hinders it, what types of memories are easily retrieved, what are difficult to retrieve. And these are all in experiments. They're well controlled. So nobody says there's no such thing as memory retrieval. And memory retrieval in, in the scientific literature is divided into spontaneous recall and cued recall. So spontaneous recall is you just remember. Again, there's thousands and thousands of experiments on cued recall. That is, say, a college student memorizes a list of words, or say pairs of words, and then two weeks later they're brought back, and they're asked to write down as many of the word pairs as they can remember. So they maybe, say, remember 60% of them. That is, they have amnesia, quotes, for having experienced this word list. So they actually had the experience. They actually can't remember those words. And one of the word pairs might be R-E-A-D, R-E-E-D. So then the experimenters will say, well, what's a tall plant that grows in marshes? They'll go, oh, a reed. Oh, yeah, the word pair was reed, reed. Completely normal, nothing surprising about it. And so this is cued recall. And there's also tons of experimental evidence that repeated recall effort, you remember more than you did before you started trying to remember. And then there's also tons of experimental evidence that, by and large, most cued and spontaneous recall is accurate, but it's not perfect. So actually, recovered memory, if you don't call it recovered memory, if you call it retrieved memory, spontaneous or cued, is like one of the most common human experiences and the most scientifically proven things in psychology. But if you call it recovered memory based on repression theory, 
then all these people get all upset about Freud and theories and blah, 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 blah. But if we just called it memory retrieval, everybody would go, well, of course, yeah, we retrieve memories all the time. And therapy is just, inter the memory part of therapy is just a whole bunch of re repeated recall effort and cued retrieval. It's absolutely, totally scientific, common sense, nothing out of the ordinary about it. And we know scientifically that if you cue, 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 you'll get more memory retrieval. It's not going to be 100% accurate. It's also not going to be 100% bogus by any means. I'm really glad that you explained that. Absolutely. And I think that our listeners, especially those who are survivors of abuse, are probably going to be shaking their heads and saying, he understands what I've been feeling. He's articulating what I've been feeling because it's very frustrating for um, the women and the men that I know because of the keepers who can't get a handle on what happened to them. And we, you know, you have the knowledge and the background to make sense of some of what they're experiencing. And so why do people block things out? Again, it's completely unmysterious. Who would want to remember that and know that and feel that? Too overwhelming. So right. again, it's not puzzling. It's not because there's something defective about you. Nobody would want to remember that. Some people have the ability to block it out. Others are not so lucky. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. We came across your work, Dr. Ross, because of a documentary that we actually found on Amazon Prime Video, specifically on Mind Control. In the video, it talked about the CIA program MKUltra on Amazon Prime. If our listeners want to find the specific documentary, it's called Mind Control, MKUltra. Gemma and I have been working currently to find out if it's possible if Father Maskell was involved with this program, the CIA program, MKUltra. We first started to entertain this idea and to follow up on this lead because of a few facts that we know. For example, Father Maskell was involved with the Johns Hopkins University back then, I believe it was a college, we know definitely they were participating in MKUltra. That's a documented fact. I have the documents from the CIA that prove that. Yeah, the financial records. Is that right? Right. We know that it was happening at the same time in the, in the Baltimore area while the abuse was happening to many of the survivors. We also know much of the experiences that our survivors went through fall in line with the kind of procedures that this MKUltra program was looking for and performing, and we know they were doing it on, quote, unwitting civilians. So can you kind of tell me, what is the MK Ultra program? So one of my books is called The CIA Doctors. It's absolutely 100% based on documents, nothing that patient told me or stories I heard. And documents equals 15,000 pages of documents, plus a lot of papers published in journals. And I got into this so I moved from Canada to Texas late 91. And within a few months, patients started telling me they weren't just abused at home. They were taken to laboratories, taken on military bases, and all kinds of experimental things were done to them. And so I thought, well, now that's pretty weird. I've never heard of that. So then I started looking into it, got all the documents. So the CIA was created in 1947. During the war, there was a entity called the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, that was created to coordinate all of the military-civilian U.S. intelligence during the Second War. Then it was disbanded in 1945, but the personnel were kind of 
brought back together and the CIA was created in 47. And in 1950, the uh, first mind control program that's been declassified that we know about was signed into operation by the director of the CIA, and that was in April 1950. Important point there is that was three months before the start of the Korean War in June, or two months at least. And uh, when all this MK Ultra stuff was coming out into the Senate committee hearings in the 70s, the official position of the CIA, and people were testifying for the CIA, was, oh, we just developed that defensively in response to what the communist Chinese were doing, brainwashing our pilots. But actually, in fact, that's not true because Bluebird, Operation Bluebird, was signed into operation April 1950. It was then rolled over into Project Artichoke, which in turn was rolled over into MKUltra, which ran kind of 1954 to 64, 63-4. Then MKUltra was rolled over into MK Search, which ran until 72-3-ish. So often MKUltra is used as kind of like an umbrella term for all these different mind control programs, but actually it was a specific program uh, that had 149 sub-projects, and the investigators, about a third of them were cleared at top secret, so they knew it was CIA money. A third of them... Um, a lot of them were just kind of chemical contracts to get certain chemicals and so on. But of the academic psychology-oriented contracts, about a third of them were unwitting contractors. They didn't know it was CIA money because it was funded through a front organization, and one of those was called the Human Ecology Foundation. Two chairmen prior to Paul McHugh at Johns Hopkins, John Whitehorn, that chairman of the Department of Psychiatry at Johns Hopkins, was on the board of the Human Ecology Foundation, so therefore was cleared at top secret and was uh, working on contract at the CIA. Uh, another prior chairman of the Department of Psychiatry at Johns Hopkins uh, was an LSD researcher who was funded by organizations that were also often co-funded by the U.S. military and the CIA. And Paul McEwen himself did brain electrode implant experiments on monkeys at Walter Reed Hospital, and brain electrode experiments on monkeys and humans were funded by the CIA, the uh, Office of Naval Research, and other elements of the military intelligence complex. So there's a lot of connections in Baltimore and with Johns Hopkins, and there definitely was CIA experimentation going on in that area, and at most of the major universities, Harvard, Yale, Tulane, etc. cetera.